Hey there, welcome back. You're listening to The DM with Audrey Brienne and Tyree. Last week, we reviewed Netflix's Emily in Paris, which is a show you guys should definitely check out. And on this week's episode of The DM, we will be reviewing the film The Notebook and having a Q&A with the notebook costume designer, Karen Wagner. So the notebook, as you guys know, because this was in 2004, I believe that our audience knows this film. The reason we're taking it so far back is because like Tyree said, today we are interviewing Karen Wagner. So that is one of, if not her biggest film to date. So we wanted to just like pay respect to that and ask a few questions of her on that. So that's why we're taking a little bit back in the day. But The Notebook was released in 2004. And it's an American romantic drama film directed by Nick Cassavetes. And it is based off a book um, of the same name by Nicholas Sparks. The costume designer is Miss Karen Wagner, who we have today. Karen's other works include Eve's Bayou, Friday Night Lights, The Green Mile, and then television series Preacher and the limited series Waco. The makeup artist is the late Daniel Charles Strypeck. And he did Saving Private Ryan, Annie, Forrest Gump, Apollo 13. He also did The Green Mile with Karen and Castaway. So also a heavy hitter in the the industry. So The Notebook is an American romantic drama. It is based in a modern-day nursing home. An elderly man, Duke, reads a romantic story from his notebook to a fellow patient. And the story is based in 1940 in Seabrook, South Carolina, where a poor lumber mill worker, Noah Calhoun, played by Ryan Gosling, sees 17-year-old heiress, Allison Alley Hamilton, played by Rachel McAdams, who is spending her summer in that town with her parents. Noah pursues Alley, and they begin a summer romance. Allie's parents don't approve of Noah and her family ends the summer vacation early. So Noah decides to write her every day for a year and his letters go unanswered. Moving forward, Allie gets engaged to another man and Noah ends up fixing up his dream home in hopes that one day him and Allie will live there together. So that's pretty much the story of The Notebook. If you haven't seen it yet, you should probably see it. It's definitely a classic. Hopefully I laid it out pretty well. (laughs) Yeah, and so we will now get into the Q&A with Ms. Karen Wagner. Karen, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm one of those kind of crazy hybrids. I actually grew up in the film business. I'm third generation. Uh, My grandfather was a cinematographer. My grandmother was a very glamorous actress in silent film. And as soon as talkies came in, she had to stop acting because she had a Russian accent so thick that you couldn't cut it with a knife. And then my dad was a sound mixer, so I grew up on sets and back lots. And it's, it's like, I feel like I'm genetically modified. It's like the only thing I know how to do. So if I had to go out and get a real job, like with real people, I would just be hopeless. But fortunately... I get to do something I really, really love every day. 
I get to tell story. I, I feel like I'm a screenwriter with clothes in a way, not to discount anything that screenwriters do because they're brilliant. And I'm just, I'm really lucky to do what I do. I love it. I travel all the time. I meet new people. I have strange and exciting and sometimes really weird things happen to me. And that's all great. So that's me in a nutshell. Have dog, will travel. <laughs> yes. That's Wonderful. Amazing. So we are just going to get into a couple of questions about the film, which we are reviewing this episode, which is The Notebook. My question for you is, what was the first thing you researched once you knew that you had booked The Notebook? So the first thing I researched was I really wanted to set boundaries. Let me backtrack one sec and say that I think that the greatest subtextual person and story in the notebook is actually Allie's mother, who was brilliantly played by Joan Allen. And she frames a lot of what Allie is and what she wants Allie to become and the expectations on Allie. So when Allie falls in love with a boy from the quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks, she comes from this tremendous background of being groomed to be society's little darling, to be a debutante, to marry higher maybe than her mother did, but it's all about social class and social standing for her mother. So even though Joan Allen doesn't have a lot of screen time, she's there in every frame. So the first thing I set out to research was where I thought Allie got her clothes versus where Noah got his clothes. And my finding on that was that I felt that the mother, Anne, took Allie four times a year to New York to a modiste to have all her clothes handmade. And whereas Noah goes down to the general store once every three years and orders three shirts from the Sears catalog that then, you know, are generally delivered to the general store and he picks them up there, mm -hmm. you know? So complete and utter attention to fashion and detail versus absolutely no attention to detail and just keeping his body covered. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing I really researched was the class differences. And I found really interesting little tidbits, such as even though during World War II, fabric was rationed, if you were that wealthy, you wore whatever you wanted, you know? So Allie's dresses have a little more fabric when she's younger because she can do anything or have anything because they've got the money. Whereas Noah is wearing shirts that haven't worn out yet. So they're still backdated to 1940 at the latest, but often even I backdated some of his shirts to like the thirties. Wow. To really show that class difference. That's so that was the first thing I jumped into. <laughs> That's cool. So, my first question is, did director Nicholas Cassavetes film in order or out of order? And how does that affect the wardrobe department? <laughs> so the interesting thing that happens when you're costuming a film that's being shot out of order, which is all of them, <laughs> as far as I know, is that the first pieces you bring to set really set the tone. So for instance... I might be shooting two people eating a hamburger at a diner and we're never going to see below say here, you know, like, you know, like a cowboy, like a cowboy at the biggest or probably a close up. This is probably all you're ever going to see this. I will outfit the entire costume change perfectly down to seam stockings, down to the high heels, down to the matching gloves and hat and bag, everything, even though you're not going to see it, 
because I want the actor to go to set feeling completely realized. And I want everybody on, on set to view the actor as a character because that then helps everybody speak to them as though they were a character and not somebody they're going to see that night at the bar for a drink. I mean, even though they might, you know, like on set, that precedent is set. So we shot the notebook. We shot the infamous, I now call it hashtag the blue dress. Mm -hmm. We shot that, all of that first. And so I really wanted to set the tone with that dress. That dress was definitely the most important costume change in that movie. And I really worked overtime to make that specific change as perfect as I could make it. Lovely. So I was curious, you kind of like touched upon this, but I was curious how, how much, if you remember of Ali's costumes were custom made and how many, all of them? Oh my God. All of them. The only thing that wasn't custom made was the bathing suit. I was not available for reshoots and somebody else found that, did a magnificent job, I felt, of finding that fabulous bathing suit. Yeah. And, and that, was, that already existed, that they found in a rental house, I believe. Well, that is my question. And that is amazing that everything is custom, save for the, the suit. The next one that I had to ask, you did talk about it, but maybe if you could elaborate, what made you go with the blue dress? Since she is wearing that the longest in the film. Like, where did that come about? The blue dress has to send some very complicated messages because it's a very complicated scenario that we're walking into. She's engaged to another man. She's still innocent. We assume for that time and age and like time of morals in our history as Americans, she's probably still a virgin. So white seemed way too obvious and too in your face. So she's Engaged to a man she doesn't love. She hasn't seen the man she does love. She doesn't know that he's been writing her letters. He doesn't know that she's been writing him letters. So she approaches this. The dress is perfectly tailored, which like throws out the it throws out the note that she's sophisticated, she's matured, she has become her mother's creature in certain aspects. But the light color indicates to me uh, her innocence and her hope. It also, it's blue to me is also a very heroic color. So in the choice of that particular sort of girlish blue, Allie says to all Americans, to me, she says to all Americans that there's, there's hope, anything's possible. So I'm trying to send out, because my head is always, like if you could look inside my head, you'd be horrified because it's always like, I feel like there's 85 filing cabinets that are constant, like in a Disney movie, you know, like how the filing cabinet is open and everything comes spewing out all the time. And behind them, there's like 85 Rolodexes that are always going zip, 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 and throwing cards out in the midair. So my mind is like that. And a lot of my costumes, especially the important ones, like this blue dress, spew out more than... more than two ideas. There's like, there's six things in that dress or seven things in that dress, messages that I want to send. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So looking back on the film, do you see trends today or do you have trends that you still use in today with other projects? I think that 
the thing that really follows through, follows me around in all my work is color and texture. Um, I definitely have a set of sort of solid ideas, kind of what I call the covenant with the audience. You know, certain things that follow through on all of my projects in one way or another. Certain, like if I want somebody to really invest some emotional attention in a character, I will make their clothes, I call it edible. I like, you know, something you want to touch, something like if you were a cat, you'd want to make muffins in that fabric. And that's like, that's an invitation to come know me as a character. So I use that. And then, and this is another note that comes through in the blue dress is Ali's shyness because the fabric I used was a kind of a slightly shiny silk. And it was like a, don't touch me, touch me, but don't touch me. You know, I'm, I'm accessible in this dress. It's got short sleeves but don't touch me because it's shiny and I'm already spoken for and, and I don't, I'm really here to just like, you know, put something to rest. So shiny sort of tends to put the audience off, you know, and make them understand that there's some kind of emotional barrier to this character. Color is another thing like richer colors for deeper emotional ties. So characters that a lot and characters that often have a lot of emotional backstory that they're maybe not going to bring to the fore, that kind of... So there's a lot of, again, the Rolodex is going. But um, there are certain through ways to my work, definitely, and those are a few of them, yeah. Cool. One of the other things that I do, that I have especially done more since The Notebook, is I've become less a slave to exact historical accuracy. And I found like when I was doing uh, the television series Underground, I stuck to the basic silhouettes, but then I would adapt like a Dior bodice from the 50s and I'd put that on an antebellum dress because Mm -hmm. it signifies something else again. It signifies a more forward thinking character. And as long, I found that as long as you adhere to the basic silhouette and people understand that we're still in antebellum times, you can take some liberties, which has been a wonderful thing for me to play with. Okay. So I think that wraps up the questions for the notebook. And we're going to get into a few more questions in regards to other projects and your backgrounds. And you, again, you touched on this, but if any elaboration you can give us, because you had said, I wanted to know why you became a costume designer. And I know you're third generation, but you could have been an actor. You could have done something else. What was it about costume design that caught your eye? Well, I started out as a production coordinator and then I became a camera assistant. And then I worked at Panavision for a while. And my background, my degree, I, you know, my whole life has been sliding from one thing to another. Like I love science and I'm one of those weirdos who loves math. I think it's like poetry, but I also love to create. And my eye, I have something called synesthesia. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Mm-hmm. It's where like some, to some people, colors have numbers To some people, sounds have taste. And so for me, the boundaries between, it's it's been a real gift because the boundaries between things, they they melt, you know? And and a blue, like I responded to someone's Instagram feed the other day without thinking. I said, oh, that blue is a seven. It's gorgeous. I thank God the person knew what I meant and they were like, yeah, isn't it? It's great. Or they just thought I was crazy. 
So my degree, I started out pre-veterinary and ended up with a degree in art history. Mm. And when I got into film, I originally wanted to become a director of photography because I thought I would paint with light because I have a dual degree in painting and art history. And the film business wasn't really ready for women in that department quite yet. And I slid, I had a very, very dear friend from high school who had also gotten into the film business and she was a costume designer and she's like, well, come try costumes, you know? And so I worked for her for free for a while and she so lovingly raised me and trained me and I just fell into it and now see myself as a painter with costumes. So I'm as conscious of the background, I will very often constrict the colors. Like if you look at a movie I did called The Majestic, there's this big scene where he's in a courtroom and you don't really think about it because it's very subtle. Everybody else, all the other lawyers and all the people who are watching this courtroom battle, courtroom drama are in browns and olives and charcoals. And Jim Carrey is in blue. He's in a very dark navy suit with a, I'm pretty sure it's a white pinstripe. So again, it's very American hero colors against this backdrop of like kind of ominous colors. And that's, a, that's you know, that's a good example of how I paint with costumes and you know, depending on the light the DP is using, depending on what effects he's going to use. You know, for me, it's all painting. And so I don't think I see the world the way a lot of other people see it. So that's eventually what drew me to costumes and why I stayed there is this great love of color and light and numbers having color, whatever that thing is. I don't know. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's... Yes, it does. I love that. In school, color theory was one of my favorite classes. So I understand what you mean with the, it's hard to describe, but the the numbers are like, there's a taste to it. It's very tangible. Yes. The color, like you get this vibe and feeling from it. So I I do understand. There's also a book I once read in my, one of my art history classes, and it was written by a German painter and I'm named Vasily Kandinsky. And he wrote a play called Sounds. He described all the sounds as colors. Wow. And that was one of my earliest influences into thinking that way. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So you have done a lot of work. Um, no, <laughs> isn't that crazy? People keep hiring me. One day they're going to call and want their money back. But yeah. No. Is there a genre that you haven't done or would like to do? Oh, there's a couple. I would love to do futuristic, mm. but probably a lot of costume designers say this. I would love to do futuristic, but not. I mean, we've all seen a lot of that like military dystopian futuristic, which is brilliant. A lot of people do it brilliantly. And we've all seen like the big, weird, like almost insect-like suits. Mm. And I want to do something else. I want to, you know, I would love to be handed some great story that's set so far in the future. We can't even, we have to make up all the rules. We have to make up where we get our oxygen, how we get our food, you know, it would have to be just so completely different that I can't even, I can't even know what that is, 
But one thing I will say that I feel is really unexplored is tribalism. In that there's so many different influences all over the world. And I love the idea of bringing in um, Star Wars, touched on it a little bit. This Japanese makeup and then sort of semi-pseudo African elements in the costumes and, and that kind of thing, the cultural exchange, which is what makes Los Angeles so beloved to me, is also what makes costumes so beloved to me. And I think that's the kind of futuristic I would like to do. I'd also love to do medieval. I've never done a medieval movie. Mm. And I think that could be so fascinating because it's such a gritty time and we never explore it for some reason. I love that time. That would be so much fun to do medieval. Right? Yeah. So I would like to touch a little bit on Waco. Not not medieval. (laughs) Not medieval. I just want to know what it was like working on costumes of a real event and like researching that and reliving it kind of and telling it again, I guess. (laughs) So that film touched me in a way, or that limited series, I guess you would say, touched me in a way that, I mean, every film leaves a different residue with me. I'm still sickened at heart by what happened there. I started my research there. I started it with David Koresh and his immediate family. And then as I dove deeper, I understood that so many of these women have had left their husbands to follow him and that they didn't consider themselves a cult, that they considered themselves a church and these were their teachings. And call it what you will, these people were very devoted to their faith and they were very devoted to David Koresh, who was a very charismatic speaker. And you begin to, when you get that deep into the research, you begin to question like how much like, and I don't mean to be blasphemous here at all, just from a sociological standpoint, like how much like Jesus was this guy? You know, when you, when you meet these great leaders and you're completely enthralled by them and you'll follow them anywhere, you know, are we looking at, you know, whether you agree or disagree with what happened at Waco just the sheer force of his personality, I found really fascinating. So I ended up doing this huge wall of research in which every single person who perished at Waco had a folder, their name, and their photograph. Families were together. Then I had another wall for the people who left Waco during the siege. Then I had another wall for the people who survived Waco, all seven of them. Then I had another huge, enormous wall of all the different kinds. There ended up, I want to say there ended up being 27 different kinds of law enforcement there. Hundreds and hundreds of tanks and planes and guns and bombs and bullets and thises and thatses and, and hundreds of spectators, all for these 200 people in this little handmade building, most of them children. And I put so much of my own love and so much of my own searching and question, like personal searching and questioning, like, why would you follow this man? What did he represent to these people? I put so much of this into this wall of people, these walls of people, that what ended up happening is when nude actors came in or the directors wanted to share how passionate they were about their project, they would bring them into my costume space and share the wall. So 
one of the people that came through, so the Waco was based on two books. One was written by one of the survivors, David Thibodeau. And the other book that it was based on was Gary Nesner's book about Waco or touched on Waco for a couple of chapters. And he was the FBI negotiator. They both came to to assist with, you know, making sure the facts were right and, and all of that. And they had never met these two people. So David Thibodeau came in and he looked at the wall and he's like, oh, I remember that guy. And he starts to tell me little tidbits of what that person did as a child or, you know, what that person, that person only ate peanut butter and jelly. That person hated zucchini, you know, whatever it was. And then he burst out crying. And then I was a little like, not freaked, but frozen. Like, what do I do? And we became very good friends out of it. And then Gary Nesner came in and he looked at the walls and he's like, I never actually met any of these people in person. So I'm seeing a lot of their photographs for the first time. So the whole thing came to life in a whole way I had not anticipated. So I did the best I could to extrapolate. Like we, out of the 200 people that were there, I think we were only able to have maybe 25 speaking parts that we could really develop over the course of the writers. I say we, but the writers and directors could really develop over the course of the six episodes. But what I did was I worked very closely with extras casting to make sure that any extra that was cast in the compound Mm -hmm. stayed the entire time and was available for the entire time we were shooting because I gave them closets. So you would see the same person in the same sweater crossing in the background or standing in line at the cafeteria. So you got to know the people in specific costumes and you could extrapolate a little bit about who they were based on what their costumes told you about them. And so, and then a few things that I built on that show were very specific to very specific people in specific instances. So one of the speeches that David Koresh gives, he wears this, this blue, light blue, again, almost the color of the blue dress, which I think I remember thinking at the time. He wears this light blue chambray shirt and he's preaching his belief and his love for these people and his love for God. And I couldn't find a shirt like that that really spoke to that era. Like I looked at a hundred blue shirts and I couldn't find the perfect blue shirt because you know how crazy costume designers are. And so I said, we're going to make this. So I did. And then another thing that I remember making was his wife, first wife, Rachel Koresh, she and her sisters in the church made these big, huge shirts that disguised their femininity. So they were almost like Texan burkas in a way. And I made a bunch of those and the directors were like, oh, those are really ugly. And I'm like, I know, but they wore them. What do we think? And they're like, oh, and I'm like, I know, what do you think? And, you know, so we ended up using them in a few scenes and then going back to other things in other scenes. And the other thing I tried to do in that movie was get as close as I, because I read the autopsy reports to see what they had died in. And I got as close as I could for their final changes to what they died. Because we have these scenes where they're all saying goodbye. And I'm like, this is what they actually were wearing. You know, they were really wearing, one character was really wearing Gloria Vanderbilt jeans and, uh, you know, and a little t-shirt, you know. So there was a lot of really deep diving on that. And I'm, how many years ago was that show? I'm still, I'm still recovering. In fact, I just shot in Oklahoma City. And the first thing 
that hit me was, oh my God, that's the city where Timothy McVeigh, who was present at Waco and blew up the Oklahoma federal building Mm -hmm. because of what happened at Waco as payback. That was like the first thing that crossed my mind. My agent's like, yeah, I'm deploying you to Oklahoma City. And I'm like, oh my God, Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. So. Wow. I was curious, what are some of your favorite costumes in either a film or a television show that you just absolutely love and refer back to? I made a little list of that, actually, because I knew you were going to ask that. (laughs) One of the first things that influenced me was The Women, which is from the 30s. That movie and its character, I mean, everything you need to know about each of those characters is right there on their bodies before they open their mouth. And I think it's a brilliant costuming job. Another film that really inspired me was Akira Kurosawa's Dreams because that movie takes away all the things and makes up something completely different, like gives you a whole brand new reality. Um, What else? I loved Derek Jarman and Julie Taymor. Derek Jarman made Edward II and Julie Taymor made Titus Andronicus. And what moved me about both of those is that they used the mores of like the the social mores and values of specific periods to tell you something about the characters. So for instance, in Titus Andronicus, Anthony starts out in Greek armor, which is very heroic. And then he goes to Roman armor, which is decidedly unheroic. And by the end of the movie, he's in a Nazi uniform. So they've mixed up all these different eras and the woman who's encouraging to become a bad person Uh, Jessica, anyway, brilliantly played. And she and her sons are wearing these crazy 80s clothes with the big, huge hair and the chunky jewelry and the the cut-off mittens and like these weird neon tigery stripey things. And and, I mean, it's a jumble. And then the heroine is dressed in this kind of Juliet, like from Romeo and Juliet, kind of this Juliet flowy kind of thing. And they paid no attention to era. They paid no attention. I mean, they mixed it all up. They were specific with each costume, but mixed it all up. And I thought, how brilliant is that? That's another movie I would love to make. You know, just a movie. And I've suggested it a couple of times and director's like, yeah, no. <laughs> that sketch, no, we're not going down that road. I'm like, all right, no, I tried. But then there are the beautiful, quiet films. My good friend, uh, Wendy Chuck, made a film called Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And it's all planned. But she tells like everybody wears plaid all day, all the time, streaming 24-7 plaid. And each person wears a plaid specific to their character and their standing in life. And they tell such beautiful, gentle stories with their plaid that I constantly refer back to that film, uh, to the quietude of it and to the exacting perfection of each tiny little detail. So the movie that I just did, American Underdog, which takes place in the 90s, it's the story of Kurt Warner and his wife, uh, Brenda Warner, and their struggle from like having nothing and, you know, living on food stamps to him becoming this amazing quarterback who wins the Super Bowl. You know, I thought back and, and like every time we do a fitting, I take something away. And I just kept making the costumes quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter till it was very subtle. So those are some, some of my inspirations. I could go on and on. <laughs> cool. So I'm going to ask you two questions at sure. once. Okay. 
what's the hardest part of being a costume designer and what is the most rewarding part of being a costume designer? You know, the hard part of being a costume designer varies and it's also the incredibly exciting thing. I mean, you're constantly having problems or issues or things thrown at your head and you're like, oh, oh, how am I going to solve this problem? And I've only got, you know, they go to set in seven minutes and the director just completely changed and they were dressed as a giraffe and now I need them dressed as a, you know, as a circus and out like, <laughs> and then you think of something and you're like, oh my God, that was amazing. I did it, you know? So sometimes the hardest thing is also the most brilliant and rewarding thing. Sometimes there's not enough money. There's never enough time. Things happen really fast you and the director are on a tangent and then the talent comes in and they hate the tangent you're on. And then you have to rethink the entire thing because in my mind, the actor is like, nobody's wrong. Like I heard this proverb when I was very young and it said, and it's, it's an old Arabic proverb and it says a horse designed by committee is a camel. And when you're out in the desert, you're like, I really need the camel more than I need the horse. So like nobody's ever wrong in my book. And I always want the actors to go to set happy. But sometimes, you know, you've got six racks of clothes that you carefully curated and shopped and brought stuff in and eBayed and whatever. And the actor comes in and is like, yeah, I know I hate all of that. And you're like, okay, let's rethink. Well, what is it, you know, what is it you want? And then a lot of times I have to convince the director you know, that like, well, the actor really wants this and maybe it's not exactly what we saw, but you're going to have a happy actor when they get to set and they're going to do a much better job because they feel like their character in these clothes. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes people change their mind about what they want. Sometimes you have to travel a fair distance and you get to where there's always like whenever I work overseas, I try to imagine what that country might not have and talk to other people who have been there. And there's always something that you didn't anticipate, <laughs> that you didn't anticipate. And you're like, okay, I'm traveling with my own safety pins because I know in this place, the safety pins are bad. I'm traveling with my own tags because I know this country doesn't make tags. And then I got to, I did a movie in Thailand a number of years ago and they don't dye shoes there. They send their shoes out of the country somewhere else to be dyed. And I needed a pair of shoes dyed red to match an outfit for an American diplomat. And I couldn't get them dyed. And I'm like, how is that? That I, you know, the one thing I could never anticipate, like what country doesn't have shoe dye for God's sakes? Mm -hmm. So like this, it's always something, but the things that seem like they're going to be your biggest problems often end up being the things you're most proud of at the end. So yeah, I'm, so that's, did I answer your questions? Yeah. So my next question for you is, has COVID affected your job a lot? Or like, what are some of the changes that you see because of working in a, a COVID climate now? Let me think about that. The, the biggest thing that's been affected, and actually happily so, has been that we're required to cast the actors two days before they play or three days before they play so they can be tested. Very often I get the actors like the night before they play, they're flying in to play at five o'clock in the morning. And because I do so much period work, it involves a lot of building. Mm -hmm. So that's been a little bit of a reprieve. 
I've always been a mother hen. So the safety of my crew and the safety of the actors has been a lot more important to production. Let's leave it there. And that makes me really happy. The only thing that's really been adversely affected is that people can't share the clothes. So a lot of times where I might have made do with a rental, I have to build because if I know there's going to be a photo double of some kind, I've got to have two identical outfits. So it does expand my budget a little bit and it does expand the time required to get a change approved and, and got together a little bit. Overall, I'm just I'm just very happy that most producers are taking COVID very seriously. Yeah. And they're and they're concerned about our safety. So that's I mean, that makes me really happy and that way outweighs any extra effort I have to go to. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> so the last question is what does the future hold for Karen Wagner and where can our followers follow you? Hmm. Well, <laughs> Let's see. I just finished a film this summer that I'm very excited about called Alice, which is about a woman who escapes her plantation only to discover she's enslaved. She escapes her plantation to discover it's actually 1970 and it's based on a true story. And that's beautifully written, beautifully acted. And I'm really super excited about it. And then right now I'm going on to a project called Jazzman's Blues, which is written and being directed by Tyler Perry. And that's 30s and 40s. And I get to do a big nightclub scene, which I've never done before. So I'm really excited about satin, flowers, feathers, dancing girls, all the things that make a costume designer happy. As far as following me, I have an Instagram account that's just Karen Wagner. And it doesn't have a lot of costumes on it. I photograph and post a lot of things that I find interesting and inspirational. I'm very inspired by nature. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of pictures of leaves and dead leaves and (laughs) flowers and sunsets and all kinds of interesting textural things. And then, of course, I have a website. But I'm around. I keep turning up like a bad penny. It's like nobody's able to get rid of me quite yet, which I'm very excited about. (laughs) And yeah. I'm like that. We have to say thank you again so much. Like we said, this is, we enjoy doing this so much. Like it is, it's our privilege to be able to have some of your time and to just hear Aww. a little bit about your job because it's, your work is, is incredible. I'm a big fan of Kyrie. So this has just been lovely to, to get to talk to you a little bit today. Well, thank you. And thank you for being such great interviewers. I feel so warmly welcomed and so nurtured by your questions and the way you ask your questions that it's been, it's been a really lovely experience to be able to open up to you and just know that you're going to listen to all my craziness and be like, yeah, that's cool. Okay, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We love <laughs> so it. Thank love you it. guys. I love it. Yeah. No, thank you. Cause we, we can tell you, it's so nice to see when people love their job. Like yeah. you don't always see that. So it's just, it's giving me a lot of hope hearing you talk today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us in another episode of The DM with Audrey Brienne and Tyree, where we reviewed The Notebook. You'll find links to The Notebook's homepage and streaming services in the description box below. A special thank you to Nearby Sound for our theme song. If you enjoyed the show, please introduce a friend to our work and tell them to subscribe. Follow us on the DM.net 
or on Instagram at AudreyBrienne and at Tyree Style. The DM is produced by Joe Passarelli, Audrey Brienne, and Tyree.